You know, each year we look at a different aspect of the Christmas story. Sometimes we focus on characters such as Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, or even Herod. Sometimes we focus on the facts of Jesus' birth in Matthew or in Luke, or discuss the various prophecies about Jesus' birth, like where he would be born. This year, our Christmas series is called The Light of the World. We wanted to spend a few weeks thinking about our Savior and His character. And therefore, we decided to go to Isaiah 9, where we find four descriptions of Messiah. Jesus would be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Last December, when we were making the preaching schedule, I suggested we do this series because it was my desire that our study of Jesus as those four descriptors would encourage our hearts would give us hope, would motivate us to live for him. So our goal for the Christmas series is encouragement and hope in Jesus that motivates us to faithful living. And from my perspective, it was the perfect end to the church's annual theme called Hope for Everyday Life. What more hope could it be than to believe that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of each of those descriptions. And therefore, I have the right Savior, and I can trust Him with my life. Well, to set the stage for my task of explaining how Jesus fulfills the phrase, Mighty God, I'd like to take a step back and think about Isaiah, prophetic ministry, and the hope that it provides today. I find the prophets to be the hardest books of the Bible to read. Sometimes I'm reading Isaiah and I don't have the foggiest idea what he's talking about. You been there? So it helps me to keep a couple things in mind. First is the role of the prophets. What are they doing? Their job was to remind people that they had not kept their covenant with God. They'd worshipped other gods beings and deities and ignored the Lord's commands. And so therefore, God had sent messengers. And he said, here's what your job is going to be. Confront the nation's sin and tell them about their consequences. Command them to repent and call them to covenant faithfulness. So when I'm reading in Isaiah and getting lost, I come back to these points. This is what he's doing, confronting them commanding them and calling them to covenant faithfulness. The Lord sent his prophets to do a tough and dangerous job. But amid confrontation, the prophets also gave predictions of hope and promise. And therefore, the second thing that I keep in mind as I read through the prophets are that their prophecies relate to different time periods. There is, first of all, restoration of the nation to the land. After they'd been exiled, they wanted to know, when do we get to go home? And sometimes the prophets answer that question. There's reconciliation with God through Messiah. And then there is the restoration of all things at the second coming. This is where the prophets can get kind of complicated. Because sometimes they talk about one two, or maybe all three of those at the very same time. 
But at least if I can remember, this is their job, and they're giving a picture of hope that helps ground me as I'm reading Isaiah. So our Christmas series taken from Isaiah 9-6 is a message of hope amid confrontation, where he reminds us of the character of the coming Messiah and what that Messiah will ultimately accomplish. And last week we focused on Jesus as the wonderful counselor. And this morning we're going to focus on Jesus who is the mighty God. So I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 9. That's on page 492 in the front section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. Page 492, Isaiah 9. We've already seen that Isaiah is going to describe the coming of Messiah, that is Jesus. And although Isaiah's prophecies were given some 700 years in advance, their fulfillment was breathtaking. And the Lord has given us the privilege of living further down the line of salvation history, where we can look back and also look forward. Please follow along as I read Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. And you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it to uphold with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. I'd like us to concentrate this morning on four principles necessary to understand and benefit from God's power. The first is that God predicted that Messiah would be the mighty God. The mighty God. Such an important statement. You know, when you read the Gospels, while Matthew and Luke provide information about Jesus' birth, Mark and John skip it entirely because they have different purposes and begin their books proving that Jesus is the Messiah, that is John's gospel, and that Jesus is Yahweh, or the Old Testament covenant name for God, that is in Mark. Think for a moment how radical it would be if someone just walked in the church house and announced that they were God. We would think they were crazy. Unless, of course, 
They could demonstrate that through signs and wonders and fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. The nation was expecting a Messiah that would be a mighty God. And we'll talk a little bit later about Jesus as God. For now, let's just think for a moment about this word mighty and how it's used in the Bible. Mighty is used in passages like 1 Samuel 17, 51. And when the Philistines saw that their champion, their mighty one, was dead, they fled. We think of Goliath in terms of strength and power. We also see in 1 Chronicles 29, all the leaders of the mighty men and also all the sons of King David submitted themselves to King Solomon. This passage reminds us of the reality of the divided kingdom, the northern ten tribes from the southern two. And in the division, those who were part of David's mighty men remained loyal to Solomon. David's mighty men were the group of people we might call the Medal of Honor recipients in our culture. To qualify, you had to kill a thousand people with a toothpick. That's why they were known as mighty, powerful, skillful. We, we find the same notion. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey the Lord Whenever I imagine a spirit being in battle, my mind just runs back to Lord of the Rings. Remember when the dead guys fight for Aragorn? I mean, you're going to have a bad day when you have to fight the dead guys. I mean, how how do you win against the dead guys, right? I mean, you're in big trouble. And here we're reminded of his angels, the mighty ones who do his bidding. The Lord is described with this same word. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. We find the same notion of power. And your arm is endued with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. The New Testament or New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology say God's power is intricately connected to righteousness, goodness, justice, steadfast love, and faithfulness. The divine power and righteousness are as vast as the immeasurable distance separating earth from the high heavens. Then, on the other hand, we find humans use their mighty power differently. Jeremiah 23 says the prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly. One more use we find in Job 12, 13, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. So when Isaiah writes about the mighty God, he was talking about someone powerful. Now, let's just think about how Isaiah described this person at first as a child, as a child. We don't have to have time this morning to invest in the paradox between the child who we would think of as powerless and might, the mighty God, which is what he is. But it is amazing that he's described in these words. 
I find it difficult to comprehend just how radical the birth of Jesus would have been. Yes, they were expecting a Messiah, but it would be hard to accept Jesus as that Messiah without prophecy proving his identification and then his fulfillment of that prophecy. They were going to need to see that he was the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. The Messiah was not just lowly, born in a manger surrounded by shepherds. He's the mighty God of Isaiah 9. Now, I mentioned that Isaiah's prophecy, just like all Old Testament prophecies, can have multiple references. So let's talk about Isaiah for a moment. What needed to happen in Isaiah's day? Isaiah ministered during a time of four kings. Chapter 7 and 9 describe the events surrounding the rule of a man named King Ahaz around 735 B.C. This is before the Assyrians conquered the nation in 722 in the north, and then the Babylonians destroyed the south in 586. So we need to walk into this stage for just a moment. The nation is divided. Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. Isaiah's ministering to the king of the south, Ahaz. You see, there's a problem. The leader of the northern nation made an alliance with two pagans and tried to pressure Ahaz to join them. You know, we don't think much about invasion in America. Because on our east and western borders, we have a large ocean that is challenging to cross. And then on our northern and southern borders, we have large nations who we have generally had a peaceful relationship with. But when you have a small country, half the size of Indiana, with nations all around that do not like you, invasion is a constant threat. So what does Ahaz do? He's under the pressure cooker of life. We're going to come back to this. He's under the pressure cooker of life. Every day you wonder, is today the day we'll be invaded? The good news is that he does not join the alliance in the north. The bad news is that he makes an alliance with an even worse nation. The one he believed was powerful and mighty, the nation of Assyria, selling out the nation and his soul to a wicked pagan king. He was warned about this. What was his decision? Jeremiah tells us, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast in the strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. See, what Ahaz chose to do was to believe his own wisdom, to believe the own press reports, 
How do I get out of this jam? How do I ensure the safety and security of my nation? Here's what I'll do. I'll sell it out to the pagans. When it came to decision time, the power of God was not significant enough for him. In Psalm 147, his pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. You see, it wouldn't take long for disasters to strike. Within 15 years, the northern tribes were decimated, and the south, only through divine rescue, survived. Amid Isaiah confronting this sinful behavior and all the consequences that they would experience, he provided a message of hope. He said, I have good news for you. You made a lot of horrible choices, and there are consequences coming for those choices. But I have good news. A Messiah is coming. A son will be given. A child will be born for you. You know, I think that was rather significant even for Isaiah himself. Because if you go back just one page to Isaiah 6, and we see his calling... Verse 5, he says, Woe is me as he sees the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he says, Lord, I'll go. And the Lord says, Great. Cleanses him, calls him into the ministry. But then he says to Isaiah in verse 9 of chapter 6, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, Isaiah said, How long? Because this doesn't sound very fun. I thought I was going to go into ministry and things were going to explode. I wasn't going to just irritate people. How long is this going to last? And here's what the Lord said. Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. You sure you want to sign up? So even Isaiah would need a message like this. It's going to be bad, and it's going to be bad for a long time. But there's going to be hope because the Lord would give a child, a son, and the people who were walking in darkness would see a great light. Now, I realize that's a lot of background, but I think this has a lot of implications for us. The first and foremost has to do with that Jesus is the marvelous fulfillment of this prophecy. So I'd like to advance the ball 700 years now. 
to the birth of Christ. And let's walk into the Gospels for a moment and see the ways in which Jesus demonstrates himself as the mighty God. The power to withstand temptation. Boy, it's a constant battle for us, isn't it? And here we find passages like Luke 4. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of this world. And he said, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. The mighty God could have decided to dismiss the humanity and humility and frailness. Yet he refused this offer as well as many others. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. The temptation to just experience and exercise power and fame. He had a mission to accomplish. What about the power to heal? In Matthew 9, it says, And he arose and departed his house. And now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to man. Matthew 9 recounts the story of the paralytic. One of my favorite scenes in the old passion play. It was not only an act of kindness to heal the man, but a demonstration of his power. God has given us a lot of grace and knowledge regarding medical procedures and the ability to heal But some things are just simply beyond knowledge and skill. And when they saw it, they marveled. What about the power to do good, even rescuing someone from the clutches of Satan? In Acts chapter 10, it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all those who were under the power of the devil Because God was with him. He clearly was the mighty God. The power to teach with authority. The Gospels continually remind us of moments where they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. It was different when Jesus got up to speak. It sounded different than when others did so. The power to forgive. When they saw the paralytic healed, they were certainly impressed that he was healed physically. But what really got them wound up is when he declared that that man's sin has been, had been forgiven. He said, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And this is going to prove that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. See, what is it that created the stir? It wasn't just two people confessing and then repenting and forgiving and then being all right. What Jesus said to the paralytic is that you are right before God. And as they heard, the Pharisees heard that, he said, you can't do that. Like, you can proclaim someone's right with you, that's fine. But you can't just proclaim that someone is right with God. And of course, Jesus can, 
because he is the mighty God. They were right. They just weren't willing to accept the fact that he was who he said he was. They were right about the fact that you're just not allowed to declare somebody right with God. They just missed that he could do so because he is the mighty God. What about the power to voluntarily die for our sins? In John 10, verse 18, we're told, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. The Gospel of John describes Jesus' hour as either not yet come or it's fulfilled. One of the two. And as long as Jesus' hour has not yet come, they couldn't touch him. They wanted to kill him many times. They sought to seize him, we're told, many times. But his hour had not yet come. And when it had not yet come, he simply walked away. When the time was right, Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. Something we cannot do. It's instead a function of the mighty God. The power to rise from the dead. Luke 22 says, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. The Bible explains that all three persons of the Godhead raised Jesus. All three. In John 2.19, speaking about himself, he says that he will destroy his temple and in three days he will raise it. Only God can raise the dead. And Jesus himself had raised the widow's son, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus, Lazarus during his earthly ministry. And only he could do that because he is the mighty God. The power to, to build his church. In Matthew chapter 28... It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. You see, what we have consistent here so far is that in the midst of a very challenging, difficult time, in the midst of confronting the nation regarding their sin and outlining the consequences that they would face, Isaiah, under the direction of the Spirit, reminds them that a Messiah is coming. A child, a son will be given. And these are going to be his names and characteristics. And so he is the mighty God. It gave hope to them in the midst of destruction that there is a future and a hope. Then we see how Jesus actually fulfills it. 
He satisfies the qualification of mighty God. So that raises the question for us. What do we do about this? How do we respond to this? How mighty is your God is another way to put it. And here's a series of questions. The first one is this. Do you have a powerful Savior? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I know some of you would say, absolutely I do. Jesus is the Messiah, and he is my Savior and Lord, and I find delight in my relationship with him today, and I'm looking forward to the relationship that we still have to come. But there might be others who answer that question differently. You do not have a powerful Savior because either you don't know about it or you have chosen to reject it. I want to encourage you to consider the fact that this was given 700 years before it happened. And if those things occurred as stated, then there's good reason to believe that the other promises are also true. Rather than foolishness, The message of Jesus living a sinless life, dying on the cross, being buried for three days, rising again, is the power of God. And we're encouraging you to repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in Christ alone. Yesterday, my daughter and I went to the Purdue Christmas show. The music was unbelievably Christ-centered. In fact, I'm sitting there thinking, This could have been done in our church. They sang songs like, Mary, Did You Know? A friend of mine, one of my professors, was good friends with Mark Lowry, the one who wrote that song. Very committed follower of Jesus. And I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder how many of the students singing these songs believe in their heart what they're singing. We sang Christmas carols together as an audience yesterday. And everyone they chose, I couldn't believe it. They, they were done in the church house. Probably, they're probably in our Christmas Eve service, order of service this year. But I couldn't help but wonder how many of them actually believe what they're saying. How many believe that Jesus is the Messiah? How many are singing these words? I I mean, it was done incredibly well. Professional performance. They had to have practiced. They sang a song called All Rise. It was unbelievable. And the person doing the solo, she, she had pipes. Let me tell you, she had pipes. I wondered how many times she sang that song. Just getting ready. And how many times did she think about the words? And then I couldn't 
fathom the audience. In fact, I, I mean, honestly, what, after the, sh- the, the show was over, I wanted to preach. I mean, there were like 5,000 people in Elliott Hall of Music. I'm like, give me the mic. This is so good. While we're here, we might as well just finish it off. Let's get the sermon done. It's true that that can happen in here too, can't it? We can hear those words. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we make them our own. Then do you have a powerful hope? A powerful hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned King Ahaz. He's got it tough. He has to lead a small, tiny, little nation. In fact, when they're divided, they're not even half the size of Indiana. They're a small quarter of the size of Indiana. His heart, we're told in Isaiah 8, shook as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. So every day is today the day. Friends, I believe that we face trials and pressures too. And there are days that our heart shakes like the trees shake in the wind. And here's my question to you. Where do you run? Where do you go? This little reference in Isaiah 9-4, it's really short. The rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. You're like, wait a minute, what battle of Midian is he talking about here? And this goes back to Gideon. An army over 100,000 is invading, and Gideon gets a whopping 300 soldiers. 300 to 100,000, not good odds, unless the mighty God is fighting for you. And then it's bring it on. Now, my question for us, for me, for you, is to ask when we face the day of challenge, difficulty, or concern, do we just run to our own solutions? I know how to fix this. I know how to solve this. Or am I going to the mighty God, throwing myself at His mercy and His grace, are we asking him to work? And that we're going to put our trust in him. And it may or may not work out the way we want. But our heart will be fixed right there. That's where it's going to be. In believing that he is the mighty God, fully capable of producing his will and his work in our life. Well, if those two things are true, that I, I know Christ as my Lord and Savior, if it's true that that's where my hope resides, even when faced with things that seem overwhelming, 
then I can ask, do I have a powerful witness? We're told in Acts 1.8 that his apostles would receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In chapter 4, we're told with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. By the time we get to Romans, we find I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. These all remind us of the importance of sharing our faith. There is a lost and dying world around us. And I hope that that is both part of your personal heartbeat, that you want to share what the Lord has done with you so that others might also repent and believe in the mighty God, but also that as we do it together, that the Lord would grant fruit. You know, the next two weekends are living nativity, aren't they? I'm guessing that those of you serving uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you've already checked the weather. And you've already seen, oh my goodness, it's going to be like 55 degrees for living nativity. This is going to be sweet. Well, I hope it's sweet because people come to know the Lord, don't you? The musical is at Faith North today. Next Sunday, it will be at Faith West. And then on the 17th, it'll be here. And, you know, sometimes people will go to something like the Purdue Christmas show. They'll hear all about Jesus. In fact, I, you know, I don't even think I finished telling my story. That girl who, who sang, sang the song called All Rise, I didn't tell you what the song was about, did I? The song was about standing before the baby Jesus as if he were king. That's what the song was about. It was like, rise, like stand in honor of whose presence you are in. People will go. But we're asking not only that the seats would be filled, but that hearts would be filled all right along with it. And so my encouragement or question is, do you have a witness Are you relying on the powerful God to use you and your words in the lives of those around you? Then do you have a powerful confidence? Powerful confidence. In Ephesians 1, it says, I kept asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order to that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. Glorious inheritance in the saints. I want to come back to that in just a second. Second Timothy 1, he did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. I want to come back to this notion of glorious inheritance in the saints. I've mentioned that prophecy can have multiple stages or reference. It was important for Isaiah's day. Isaiah needed to know that there was a future coming Messiah. The people needed to know that. Now, you and I are living 
at a time when we've advanced the ball to the coming of Messiah, and we can look back on that. But do you know there's other phrases in Isaiah 9 that have not been fulfilled just yet? The government will be on his shoulders. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Do you realize that in some ways we are actually in the same place as Isaiah's audience? There's something still to come. There's something still to come. And while we wait, we might experience some difficulties and challenges. We might experience hardships. But do we live with a confidence that today could be the day? Do we live with a confidence that says the Lord is going to make it all right? We might have a mess, but the Lord's going to make it right. One day the Lord's going to fix it. I don't know if I'll get to see it like Isaiah's people didn't get to see Messiah at that time. But they had confidence that he would come. Does that then motivate you to Christ-like behavior? It's like, while I have breath and life, I'll live for Christ. I'll live for him. And I'll look forward to his return or his taking me home. Then last, you have powerful wisdom. You know, sometimes we didn't see a whole lot of wisdom in Isaiah or Ahaz's day. But we sure can have it now. The wisdom of God is available to us. We just need to ask. Well, Jesus is the mighty God, isn't he? Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for Isaiah's prophecy. Thank you for the parts of it that we have already seen fulfilled. That the gospels describe Jesus as the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. And thank you that the next two Sundays we'll have the privilege of reflecting on the truth that he is the Prince of Peace and the Eternal Father. Lord, I also ask that you would please work in our hearts. It's so easy to hear a message and then do nothing with it. Would you help those of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior? to put our trust in him. And that as we face trials, challenges, difficulties of various sorts, would you help us to lean into our relationship with Jesus as the mighty God, to seek the solutions that he would want and not to sell out on our covenant with you because we think there's someone else or something else that is mightier. I pray for those who may not have a saving relationship with Jesus, would ask that you would use your truth 
to convince them that Jesus is, in fact, the mighty God. And Lord, we're asking for fruit this Christmas season. We're asking that people would hear the message, would repent and believe. We pray that the Christmas cantata at North today, more people would be there than any other Sunday, that they would believe the words that they're hearing. And as it travels to West and here, that it would be well attended. People would come to hear the beauty of Christmas music, but they wouldn't just simply enjoy the music. They would take the message to heart. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.